Hi, I'm Whitney. And I'm Camden. Welcome to Ghosts and Garnets, Murder in Idaho. The story we have for you today is the story of the absolute disaster. I was going to say clusterfuck, but my mom says we swear too much on this podcast, so I changed it to disaster. (laughs) The absolute disaster that was Ruby Ridge. And this is a heavy one. And I do have to tell you before we get started that I was a little late. Well, we both were a little late to our scheduled thing, but I was a little late because my five-year-old stuck a Lego bird up her nose. (laughs) and I had to retrieve it. Oh, well, I did that one time, except for it wasn't a Lego bird. I don't even think we had Lego birds in 1984, but when I was a small child, I stuck a raisin real far up my nose, real far. And my mom was like, Camden, why did you stick a raisin up your nose? And Camden, who hates confrontation and being in trouble, said, I forgot where my mouth was. (laughs) Well, so anyway, I feel like Poppy, you know, it's just like a rite of passage. Yeah, you know, Tuck swallowed a quarter when he was way too old to have swallowed a quarter. And we ended up having to overnight in the hospital. um, I remember that. Forceps out for (laughs) Poppy's nose situation today. But we got it. You're prepared now. Yes. So... You guys, we are also trying something new. We're shaking it up. We're recording during the day, which we we don't do. We usually record at night. And uh, Sunday nights, we figured out we're, we were not good on a Sunday night. So we're trying it on a Sunday afternoon today. We had the Sunday scaries we on did Sunday have nights. The scaries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was not, it wasn't pretty. We always, we had to redo stuff. So what do you remember about Ruby Ridge? All I really remember is watching it on TV with my parents. It was always on, you know, every night. It was just kind of like how any major happening in history has been for us. You just have it on TV all day long, as long as they were broadcasting it. And I don't, I just remember that it was bad. I don't remember my parents having an opinion one way or the other on it. I'm I'm sure they did. It's just, you know, I was 12, so. Mm Mm-hmm. I just remember that there were people up on this hillside and there was police officers with guns and the FBI and it was just this terrible thing. What do you remember? You know, the only thing I remember is my mom always had the Today Show playing when we were eating breakfast before school. And I remember it being on and watching it as I ate breakfast and it was on like every morning for two weeks. I remember that, but... I think Northern Idaho in my brain was as far away as Egypt, you know, in my 12 year old brain. Right. I don't remember a lot. And it was so interesting to go through all this stuff because I didn't know most of it. Like I couldn't, I could have given you a very bare bones, you know, explanation for it. Yeah. I don't remember. I didn't even know really why it started. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't until we started researching this. So. Yeah. Super um, it is definitely, there's so much to this story and it's, this is not a feel good story. This is not a story where there is a clear good guy and a clear bad guy. This is a story about groups of people making terrible choices 
every time they are given the opportunity to make a choice and it leading to the worst possible outcome. It is a lesson in how judgment without knowledge creates impossible situations. It's the story of a family and how their belief system left them vulnerable to the U.S. government and its laws. And there are many sides to this story. Everyone has something different to say. We are going to try to stick to as much factual information as we can. There's issues in this story that inspire really strong reactions in people. We are going to talk about government separatists, which is still a big issue in Idaho. And we are going to talk about white supremacy, which is part of this story. And unfortunately, part of Idaho's reputation. And while this is not a political podcast, and we try to objectively tell stories and respect everyone's beliefs, I'm going to stick a disclaimer on this that we have absolutely zero tolerance for racist bullshit. And we will not be censoring ourselves when we talk about certain aspects of this. So you're going to hear us get a little ragey today, which I enjoy a ragey Camden. It doesn't happen a lot. So I'm really going to take advantage of it today. (laughs) There's so much information out there, but for this story, um, there's a fantastic documentary on PBS called Ruby Ridge American Experience. I mean, you can find so many articles on Ruby Ridge, but um, there's a website called Famous Trials and an article by Professor Douglas Linder that we got a lot of information out of. He had a great timeline and broke it down in a way that was easy to understand because there's so much uh, going on in the story. So we are going to try to tell it uh, as as simply and clearly as we can, uh, but it is, it's a big one. So deep breath, everyone. Here we go. Um, In the 1980s, the mountainous panhandle of northern Idaho became a magnet for radical ideas. Government haters, minority haters, immigrant haters, and modern culture haters all found refuge in the remote mountains. In his book, Ruby Ridge, The Truth and Tragedy of the Randy Weaver Family, Jess Walter describes Idaho's northernmost county, Boundary County, as a place where a blurring continuum of homeschoolers, Christian survivalists, apocalyptic, John Birchers, Posse Comitatus members, constitutionalists, tax protesters, identity Christians, and neo-Nazis could find both one another and a ridge atop which to hide out and build a life. So we'll give you some background on the Weaver family first. Um, Vicki Jordison and Randall Weaver began dating in earnest in 1970 after meeting at a dance when Randy cut in while she was dancing with his friend. Vicki was a secretary for Sears Roebuck, raised on a farm near Colville, Iowa. Randy was a Green Beret. Randy and Vicki married in November 1971 after Randy received an honorable discharge from the Army. The couple moved to Cedar Falls, Iowa. Randy landed a well-paying job at a John Deere tractor factory in Waterloo. Their first child, Sarah, was born in 1976. In 1978, Vicki read a book that would steer them toward Idaho and this calamity. It was called The Late Great Planet Earth 
And in it, it prophesied the end of times and predicted a nuclear holocaust and Armageddon. It warned that Christians would be persecuted and there would be the great tribulation. Then there would be the rapture and true believers would be selected by God to join him in paradise. Vicki and Randy began to share with friends their plan of moving to a mountaintop as far as possible from false governments, desperate people, and hunters of good Christians. Vicki would tell people, we have been having this vision. Now, apparently a reporter uh, in Waterloo heard about their impending journey and interviewed them, and they told this Waterloo paper that they planned to build a house in the woods with a defensible 300-yard kill zone around its perimeter. They became increasingly isolated, and as their radical beliefs intensified, they started to lose friends. In 1983, the couple packed up and left Iowa with Randy driving a moving van and Vicki following behind in a pickup truck. They were heading west to meet the end of time in the mountains. On September 6th, 1983, Randy and Vicki found their mountain about eight miles southwest of Bonner's Ferry, Idaho, that was, according to Vicki, just what the Lord had shown them. This is not a hill. This is a big ass mountain that they found. Right. You know, in some articles, it's, they talk about like how they built a house on a hilltop. This is not a hilltop. This is a king mountain in Idaho. This is gigantic. It is two miles up this mountain. They decided that this was their place. There were boulders and thick forest and fresh spring water. And so they paid $7,500 for 15 acres on top of this mountain. And they built a cabin, which had no running water or electricity. Then they began to meet the neighbors. Within a year of their arrival, the Weavers had some new friends, as well as some new enemies. Randy befriended a number of locals who shared his views, but those same views, as well as property disputes, and his habit of constantly firing off bullets into the surrounding hillside, set some other neighbors against him. In 1984, Randy Weaver and his neighbor Terry Kinnison had a dispute over a $3,000 land deal. Kinnison lost the ensuing lawsuit and was ordered to pay Weaver an additional $2,100 in court costs and damages. Kinnison wrote letters to the FBI, the Secret Service, and the county sheriff in which he alleged that, that Weaver had threatened to kill Pope John Paul II, President Ronald Reagan, and Idaho Governor John V. Evans. So the feds went to talk to Randy. The investigation noted that Weaver associated with Frank Kumnick, who was known to associate with members of the Aryan Nations. Weaver told the investigators that neither he nor Kumnick was a member of the Aryan Nations, but he stated that Kumnick was associated with the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, which was a far-right militant organization dedicated to Christian identity and survivalism during the 1970s and early 80s. After the interview, the feds left, and no charges were filed in regards to the alleged threats. <sighs> it's already heavy. Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting in that documentary that we were watching mm -hmm. that the daughter was talking about going to these, like, Aryan Nation picnics. 
if you will. And not necessarily that they identified with all of those beliefs, maybe at first, but Mm -hmm. it was something to do and a way to make friends, which just seems so bizarro to me. Well, it is bizarro. I mean, but it's, it's so crazy. Can you imagine living in a place that is so remote that the only people to talk to are wackadoos and racists? No, it sounds that's that's what you're gonna do on a horrifying. <laughs> sounds like what my nightmares are made out of. Yeah, yeah. There's a hell. That's what it's like. Agreed. With the basement. <laughs> so let's talk about how all of these all of these fine citizens ended up in northern Idaho. So. This preacher, and I, I use this term very lightly, uh, his name is Richard Butler, and he built an Aryan Nations compound in Hayden Lake, Idaho, which is way up north, very remote. And the sign outside the compound advertised it as the location of the Christian identity movement. So it didn't say Aryan Nations, it said Christian identity movement. And what makes me so fucking crazy about these people is that for some reason, they are always attaching Christianity to their cause. To their disgusting cause. Right. Yes. Like, yeah, they're going to put on their little hate hats and they are going to hide under the banner of Christianity And I am sorry, but the last time I checked, hate was not a Christian value. And it drives me absolutely bananas. Like you cannot use religion as a reason to hate and persecute people. Well, exactly. And it's, I, they've done it since the dawn of time. Yeah. And to me, to me, I wonder if it's because, you know, people can't be prosecuted for their religious ideations, beliefs. And so I feel like you're right. It is a way to hide under this banner of Christianity and the law. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. I think if you use God as a way to explain your hateful garbage to people, it's more acceptable in some people's brains because it's under the guise of religion. Right. But true anyway. Christians, true people of God know yeah. that it's, that's a bunch of bullshit. Right. Yes. I mean, yeah. No, it's wackadoo. It's baffling to me. So this guy, Richard Butler, he was the one who held like the barbecues and the get togethers that the Weaver family started coming to. And then he had this annual weekend festival, and that's what they called it, a festival where racists and assholes from all over the country would gather at this compound in the middle of nowhere, Idaho, so they could share their nasty hatred of everything and plan bombings and, you know, just generally be fucking monsters together. And it was an annual event. Like, it's like how people would plan to go to, you know, I don't know, wherever people go when they're young. <laughs> Coachella. Coachella, thank you. 
God. <laughs> that was a stretch for you. <laughs> That's because we're, we're homebodies now. Go ahead. I literally pulled a Lego bird out of a nose today. Like, my life is not glamorous at all. At all. <laughs> so anyway, yes, Randy's eldest daughter in this documentary, Sarah, she did talk about how there was nothing to do, so they would just go. And she was a child at this point, so in her brain, they were just hanging out with neighbors. Right. I think she was trying to say that they were more about being separatists of the government than separatists of other people. But the entire reason why Richard Butler planted his flag in Northern Idaho is, is because he said he wanted to be in a less diverse place. Cause you know, lots of white people anyway. So either way, Going there's not a good look. I would rather, you know, hang out by myself, but. Same. I'm super company. <laughs> you are super company. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here's where it starts to get. This is, this is where your ideology can come and get you in a little bit of trouble. So on February 28th, Randy and Vicki Weaver filed an affidavit with the county courthouse alleging that their personal enemies were plotting to provoke the FBI into attacking and killing their family. Then on May 6th, the Weavers sent President Reagan a letter claiming that their enemies had forged a letter a death threat letter to Ronald Reagan and signed their name to it. So they were already on the Secret Service radar. But the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms first became aware of Weaver in July of 1986 when he was introduced to a confidential ATF informant, which he did not know was an informant, at a meeting at the World Aryan Congress. I'm assuming, I didn't look it up because it icked me out. I'm assuming World Aryan Congress is like a gathering of faux officials in the hate hemisphere. Is this what we're going to assume about this? Yeah, I feel like it's like just this sort of like, if you will, another festival Yeah, for the world of grossness that was probably also annual gross. Yeah. yeah. I didn't look it up either because I don't need that down computer. <laughs> You'd get a visit by the ATM. <laughs> no thanks. So this was Randy Weaver's first time at this Congress. The informant portrayed himself as a weapons dealer working with motorcycle gangs. And Weaver had been invited to the meeting by his friend, Tom Nick who had been the original target of the ATF investigation. Now, Koenig had flipped and was now working for the ATF, but Weaver did not know this. After Weaver's in introduction at the World Aryan Congress, a separate informant named Kenneth Fadley 
who was using the alias Gus Magasono. Why did he choose such a hard last name? I know. Magasono. Gus Magasono. So they met several times uh, together over the next three years, and he sort of befriended Weaver. Weaver would invite him over to their house and would talk about how horrible the government was and how everything was falling into, you know, the devil's hands. And after a conversation in October of 1989, in which Randy foresaw an imminent war with the Soviet Union and complained for the millionth time about the world going down the tubes, the two men discussed a deal in which Weaver would sell Fadley some sawed-off shotguns. Now, Fadley claimed that Weaver proposed this deal, and Weaver insisted that it was the other way around. It's a he said, he said at this point. It doesn't really matter. So two weeks later at a city park, Weaver handed Fadley two shotguns that he had sawed five inches shorter than the federal law allowed. The next spring, in June of 1990, ATF agents went to Weaver and told him they had evidence that he had violated federal gun laws. And then they offered Weaver a deal. He could become an informant on the Aryan nations and the gun charges would be dropped. Weaver said, you can go to hell. Then back at the cabin that night, after he told Vicky what had happened, Vicky composed a letter to, quote, Aryan nations and all our brethren of the Anglo-Saxon race, warning them that the ATF agents were looking for snitches. A warrant was issued for the arrest of Randy Weaver. Now, all of these choices that people have made up to this point, so many times things could have been stopped. And it's just going to continue to snowball into such a horrifying situation. I, I, I like yeah, it. There's just, I know it's really, the documentary was hard for me to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to tear up a couple of times. It was just yeah, it's awful. So, it's so sad. It was, and you ugh. know, not only, you know, we'll get into that a little bit more yeah. later on down the road, but nobody was right in the situation. It was no. just, no one could win. So, Mm-mm. So, aside from um, sending a letter to the Aryan Nations warning them that the government was looking for snitches, she had also filed an affidavit with the Boundary County Clerk, giving legal notice that we believe we may have to defend ourselves and our family from physical attacks on our lives by the federal government. So, as you can surmise, the ATF agents were understandably reluctant to simply drive up to the Weaver's long dirt driveway and attempt an arrest there. Instead, they hit upon another plan, posing as stranded motorists one January night after having been radioed by a neighbor that Randy was on his way down the mountain. Three agents and a county sheriff surprised Weaver with an arrest at gunpoint. The next afternoon at the federal building in Coeur d'Alene, a magistrate entered a non-guilty plea for Weaver and released him on an unsecured $10,000 bond. A court date was set for February 20th, 1991. So on January 22nd, the judge in the case appointed attorney Everett Hoffmeister as Weaver's legal representative. 
The same day, Weaver called probation officer Carl Richens and told him that he had been instructed to contact Richens on that date. Richens did not have the case file at that time, so he asked Weaver to leave his contact information and said he would contact him when he received the paperwork. According to Richens, Weaver did not give him a telephone number. Hoffmeister sent Weaver letters on January 19th, January 31st, and February 5th, asking Weaver to contact him to work on his defense within the federal court system. On February 5th, the trial date was changed from February 19th to February 20th to give participants more time to travel following a federal holiday. The court clerk sent the parties a letter informing them of the date change, but the notice was not sent directly to Weaver, only to Hoffmeister. On February 7th, Richens sent Weaver a letter indicating that he had the case file and he did to talk to Weaver. This letter erroneously said that Weaver's trial date was March 20th. On February 8th, Hoffmeister again attempted to contact Weaver by letter, informing him that the trial was to begin on February 20th and that Weaver needed to contact him immediately. Hoffmeister also made several calls to individuals who knew Weaver, asking them to have Weaver call him. Hoffmeister told U.S. District Court Judge Harold Lyman Ryan that he had been unable to reach Weaver before the scheduled court date. Weaver never had any intention of returning for his court date. A letter written by Vicki to the attorney for Idaho addressed in the letter as the servant of the Queen of Babylon promised they will not bow to your evil commandments, whether we live or whether we die. When the February court date passed, with Randy as a no-show, a failure to appear warrant was issued for Weaver's arrest and the case transferred from the ATF to the U.S. Marshal Service. As the law enforcement arm of the federal court, the USMS were responsible to arrest and bring in Weaver, now considered a fugitive. When the Weaver case passed from the ATF to the U.S. Marshal's office, no one informed the Marshals that the ATF had attempted to solicit Weaver as an informant. This is important because they didn't know that Weaver had conflict with them previously. Weaver simply stayed at the cabin with his family, not leaving the mountain over the winter, and friends and neighbors brought them supplies. This story is such a a good example of how bureaucracy works or rather how or it doesn't, doesn't work. work. <laughs> yeah. At so many points in this story, you just like want to scream and be like, talk to each other. Talk right? to each the other. Communication. That is what I was thinking after watching the documentary. Communication. Yes. Communication. Yes. It works in every relationship in your life, people. Yes. Every relationship. Even, even the ones with the CIA, you could talk to them. It would be fine. Well, <laughs> and I think what kills me too is that Weaver did himself no good in not handing yeah. over his own attorney his phone number. He, they didn't have a phone. Oh, that's right. And they didn't have electricity. So wait, when they were talking, yeah, he must have been going somewhere to call him. Weaver, yes. Weaver was going somewhere to call his attorney. Okay, wow. I just... Yes. But they did have mail service. Yeah, they did have mail service. So... If nothing else, he ignored the 10 letters that were sent to him. And also, thank God. I mean, could you imagine? I don't really know if it was the same way back in 1992. Or did they have civil servants who served papers back then? Could you imagine being somebody who had to go up there and serve like an order to appear? No. For no. court? No. no. I mean, terrifying. 
I don't know if that's, I'm sure that's probably, it seems like it's always been done that way. Yeah. I mean, you would, you would think. I don't know. Didn't, didn't, I, that question did not cross my mind until I started talking here, but. Well, right. I mean, they're not just going to. Either way, I think it was pretty clear, especially from like the, the documentary that he was not, it doesn't matter if he, if he wasn't informed at the correct court date. I mean, Obviously, he should have been informed of the right. correct court date, but he wasn't planning on going. No, he, he was literally go. was like, "I'm not leaving the mountain. I'm gonna stay up here all winter with my family and all my fucking guns, and people will bring us supplies, and I'm just gonna wait it out. Maybe they'll forget over the winter. Winters are really hard in Idaho. Maybe they'll just get too cold and they won't want to come up and arrest me again. Like, but this is a this is not like a failure to appear for a traffic ticket." This is a failure to appear on a federal gun charge. And the fact that he thought that he could just ignore it and it would go away. I don't care how indignant you are about it. All you have to do is drive down the mountain. He must have had nerves of steel. Because can you imagine the amount of anxiety you would have if you... Had an unpaid parking ticket, let alone that you hadn't taken care of for nine months, let alone a federal gun charge. I don't even think it was like him being naive to things or or him having big balls. I honestly think he was just, fuck the government. Rules don't apply to me. Yes. And I don't care if it puts my family in danger. And I'm living on a mountain. So Yeah. Fuck you all. Let him come to my mountain with my 300 meter perimeter of death circle or whatever it was called that he said at the beginning. (laughs) Nothing can come from having a 300 foot death circle. Anywho. Yeah. (laughs) We could never be survivalists. We don't know any of the lingo. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this is now 1991. And the Weaver household... Uh, had grown to four kids with the birth of their third daughter, fourth child. Um, and her name was Elisheba. I wonder if that's a biblical name. Sounds like it. I don't know. I don't like it. Anyway, they had, in addition to Elisheba, there was Sarah, who is now 15, Sammy, a boy, who was 13, and Rachel, who was nine years old. They also had um, sort of a pseudo foster son. It wasn't official, but um, this guy named Kevin Harris, who they had kind of informally adopted, who was at their house for long stretches of time. I think he started coming around when he was a teenager. And at the time that all of this happened in around 91, 92, he was 28. um, And he was visiting the family and he was supposed to leave to go up to Alaska to work. And his his job got delayed by one week. Otherwise, he would not have been here uh, for all of the rest that is, to, that is to come. It should also be noted that dear Miss Vicky did not have her baby in the hospital. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot that. Yeah, she had it in a birthing shed. A birthing shed. On the mountain. Which, I mean, teach their own, but I am fully wanting to be hooked up to an epidural and whatever else you can do for me, but a birthing shed. Give me the drugs. There were no drugs in the birthing shed. 
I mean, and it's, there's pictures. I'll post a picture of the birthing shed. It's literally a shed. It's a shack. Handmade shed. It's not even big enough to be a shack. It's a shed. Like it is, (laughs) it is enough for a single lady to be ripped apart by herself Mm. and then come out with a baby. Thank you, Pat. And I don't know. There's something about the word or the words like birthing shed. Sounds like an animal. I was just. Uh, that's where say. you take the cows. The cows are in the birthing shed. Yeah, the barn is the cows' birthing shed. The pigs are in the birthing <laughs> shed, and the chickens are in the hen house laying their eggs. You can have your baby however and wherever you want. I just don't think that a shed is probably very clean. Same. Just saying. Good thing she didn't need a C-section. You and I could have never been done the birthing shed because we were C-section moms. We would have died. Yeah. So thank God we were not on a mountain for that. All right. (laughs) Up until this point, the Marshal Service had made a series of attempts to have Weaver surrender peacefully, but he had refused to leave his cabin all winter. There was also a confirmation hearing for a new... Uh, director of the marshal service. And so it was sort of suspended this campaign to try to get Randy down the mountain. It was sort of suspended while this uh, was going through. So that maybe gave Randy, maybe it made him more comfortable like they were going to forget because they sort of left him alone for a few months. But many of the people that the uh, marshal service had used as third-party go-betweens to help them try to get Randy down the mountain. Um, like Bill and Judy Grinder, Alan Jepson, and Richard Butler. Richard Butler, the racist preacher, they tried to use him to get Randy down the mountain. The racist preacher. Anyway, <laughs> all of those people were assessed by the Marshal Service to be even more radical than the weavers. And that's who they were using to try to get information. And these people were working with them. But they hated the government more than Randy did. It's just craziness. So Dave Hunt was the U.S. Marshal who was in charge of sort of investigating how they were going to get him down the mountain. And he asked Bill Grider, why shouldn't I just go up there and talk to him? And Greider replied, let me put it to you this way. If I was sitting on my property and somebody with a gun comes to do me harm, then I'll probably shoot him. Well, let me just say that right now, living in Northern Idaho now, well, central Northern Idaho, a lot of people feel that way still. I mean, I wouldn't probably relate to that so much if I was still living in Boise or maybe in a more populated place like Lewiston even, but people are like that still here. No, I mean, I, I understand that, I guess. I understand the, that, but I, it's a strange assumption for me to make, I guess, that someone is coming to do me harm if they come on my right. property. That's not an assumption that I have. And even like somebody with a gun is coming. Everyone up there carries guns. Right. Like, why would it be an assumption that they were making I don't know. It just, to me, it speaks more of being like paranoid than anything else. But I also don't, you know, live in that world. So, all right. So Weaver sort of negotiated with U.S. Marshals Ron Evans, Warren Mays, and David Hunt. 
um, from March 5th to October 12th of 1991. Then the U.S. attorney directed that all negotiations go through Hoffmeister, the appointed legal representation on the weapons charge, but Weaver wouldn't talk to him. So Marshall's then began preparing plans to capture Weaver to stand trial on the weapons charges um, and his failure to appear charge. At a March 27th, 1992 meeting at the U.S. Marshal Service headquarters, Art Roderick codenamed the operation Northern Exposure. Surveillance teams were dispatched and cameras were set up to record activity at Weaver's residence. Marshalls observed that Weaver and his family responded to vehicles and other visitors by taking up armed positions around the cabin until the visitors were recognized. Now, this is Randy, Vicky, and their three kids that were old enough to hold guns. And the friend. Yeah, and Kevin, if he was there. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Day one. On August 21st, 1992, six marshals were sent to scout the area to determine suitable places away from the cabin to apprehend and arrest Weaver. The marshals, dressed in military camouflage, were equipped with night vision goggles and M16 rifles. Art Roderick, Larry Cooper, and William F. Bill Deegan formed the re- reconnaissance team, while David Hunt, Joseph Thomas, and Frank Norris formed an observation post on the ridge north of the cabin. At one point, Roderick threw two rocks at the Weaver cabin to test the dog's reaction. The action provoked Stryker, who began barking. Weaver, Kevin Harris, and Weaver's 14-year-old son, Sammy, emerged and followed the dog, splitting at the Y, which was a fork where one arm led down to a meadow and the other was a steep path down the mountain. Harris and the younger Weaver said that they were hoping the dog had noticed a game animal as the cabin was out of meat. The recon team, so Roderick, Cooper, and Deegan, initially retreated through the woods in radio contact with the OP team, but later took up hidden defensive positions. The recon team retreated through the woods to a Y junction. Sammy and Harris followed Stryker on foot through the woods, while Randy, also on foot, took a separate logging trail. Vicky, Sarah, Rachel, and baby Elisheba remained at the cabin. By their account, Sammy and Stryker came out of the woods about a minute later. When the marshal's position was revealed by the dog Stryker, a yellow Labrador retriever, D.U.S.M. Roderick, shot the dog. The marshals said they identified themselves as U.S. marshals several times. Seeing this, Sammy Weaver reacted by shooting in the direction of Roderick. D.U.S.M. Cooper then shot towards Sammy Weaver and Kevin Harris, who both sought cover. Harris, once finding cover behind a tree stump, then returned fire with one unnamed shot, which eventually killed DUSM William Francis Bill Deacon. As described by Randy and Sarah Weaver in their book, The Federal Siege, Harris's version of events differed as follows. Harris told them Stryker was followed out of the woods by Sammy and Harris. He said the dar- dog ran to Roderick, who shot it in front of Sammy. Sammy yelled, you shot my dog, you son of a bitch, and fired a shot at Roderick. Harris said that Deegan came out of the woods and shot Sammy in the arm. Harris fired and hit Deegan in the chest. According to the Weavers, Harris said that Cooper fired at Harris, who ducked for cover, and Cooper fired again, hitting Sammy in the back, who fell. 
Harris fired about six feet in front of Cooper, forcing him to take cover. Only then did he hear Cooper identify himself as a U.S. Marshal. Harris said he checked Sammy and found him dead and ran to the Weaver's cabin. Now, all of this will come up a lot later. Um, there's a lot of names and it's all very complicated and a lot of ballistic stuff will come up later, but um, whether or not these men dressed in camouflage in the woods identified themselves as federal marshals immediately before the dog was shot or not until after 19 rounds had gone through the air, that's still contested. I mean, it's, and it's just, just bad choice after bad choice. So after the firefight at the Y junction, Hunt and Thomas went to a neighbor's house to call for assistance from the U.S. Marshals Crisis Center. Norris, Cooper, and Roderick stayed with Deegan's body uh, where he had fallen uh, at the base of the Y. Randy and, and Vicky, after Kevin ran up and told them that Sam had died, they went down to the Y and retrieved Sammy's body. Randy, Vicky, and Kevin Harris then placed Sammy's body in the birthing shed. From 11.15 a.m. onward, Hunt reported to the crisis center that no further gunfire was heard. So now the case is going to transfer from the U.S. Marshal's office to the FBI because of the shooting death of the U.S. Marshal. So we're getting it passed to a third federal agency. And this will only complicate matters more. So the FBI is told that they are entering into an ongoing firefight with white supremacists, with a group of white supremacists that have essentially barricaded themselves on a mountain. And they are told that a surrender warning did not need to be called out because the U.S. Marshals had already done that. Let's talk about a deadly force policy because this is going to come into play quite a bit. The FBI's standard deadly force policy at that time stated, Agents are not to use deadly force against any person except as necessary in self-defense or in the defense of another when they have reason to believe that they or another are in danger of death or grievous bodily harm. Whenever feasible, verbal warnings should be given before deadly force is applied. Someone who's a fucking idiot decided to change the rules of engagement for this standoff. And that would prove to be, in in my opinion, the biggest mistake that is made in this whole series of mistakes. On day two, which is Saturday, August 22nd, special rules of engagement were drafted and approved by the FBI headquarters and the Marshal Service 
for use on Ruby Ridge. The Ruby Ridge rules of engagement were as follows. One, if any adult in the area around the cabin is observed with a weapon after the surrender announcement had been made, deadly force could and should be used to neutralize the individual. Now, remember, they had already told the FBI agents that they didn't have to use a surrender announcement. Two, if any adult male is observed with a weapon prior to the announcement, deadly force can and should be employed if the shot could be taken without endangering children. Three, if compromised by any dog, the dog can be taken out. Four, any subjects other than Randy Weaver, Vicki Weaver, Kevin Harris, presenting threat of death or grievous bodily harm, FBI rules of deadly force apply. Deadly force can be utilized to prevent the death or grievous bodily injury to oneself or that of another. Now remember, Vicki was not at the firefight. Vicki was at the cabin with her kids. Then there's a footnote at the bottom of this section. The rules of engagement that that same day was modified from adult to adult male to exclude Vicky around 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon after consultation with Glenn because Vicky Weaver was not seen at the site of the death of the marshal. So they all got in a big tent together, all of these snipers and the leaders of this horribly executed plan. And the new rules of engagement were communicated to the agents, including communication to snipers prior to deployment that included change of adult to adult male to exclude Vicki Weaver. Now, some deployed FBI agents, in particular the snipers, would later describe the adopted rules of engagement as a, quote, green light to shoot on site. According to this massive report that was later done by the Department of Justice, there were various views and interpretations taken of these rules of engagement by members of FBI SWAT teams in action at the Ruby Ridge site. Denver SWAT team leader Gregory Sexton described them as severe and inappropriate. Two members of the Denver SWAT team said they were strong in a departure from the standard deadly force policy, inappropriate, and a sort one had never been given before. The latter of these two members said that other SWAT team members were taken aback by the rules and that most of them clung to the FBI's standard deadly force policy. Another team member responded to the briefing on the rules of engagement with Quote, you've got to be kidding. But most of the FBI snipers accepted the new rules of engagement and modified their policy accordingly. According to later interviews, sniper Dale Monroe saw the rules of engagement as a green light to shoot armed male adults on site. And a different sniper believed that if he observed armed adults, he could use deadly force but he was to follow standard deadly force policy for all other individuals, meaning the children. So he thinks he can kill Vicky. Fred Lansley, the FBI hostage negotiator at Ruby Ridge, 
was surprised and shocked because this adapted rule of engagement was the most severe he had ever heard in the more than 300 hostage situations that he had been a part of. Now, at this point, the snipers, who all have a different idea of what has just been told to them, surround the cabin. The FBI had not, as of yet, made a, a surrender demand when sniper Len Harucci's opportunity arose shortly after taking his position outside the cabin. Randy, Sarah, his 15-year-old daughter, and Kevin, the family friend, left the cabin to go visit Sammy's body in the birthing shed. As Randy reached for the shed door, a bullet tore through his arm. After the shot, the three ran back to the cabin. Now, Vicky opens the door as her husband and Sarah and Kevin all are sort of diving in to the door. Then another shot rang out. At that point, screams were heard from inside the cabin. But what the snipers did not know and would not find out for many days after is that the second bullet that Haruchi fired had gone through Vicki Weaver's head while she was holding her baby. It went through her head and then it went into the abdomen of Kevin Harris, where it lodged. Day three, August 23rd. The bottom of the mountain, a roadblock had been set up. Neighbors and reporters are gathered at the bottom of the mountain. At this point, the press only have the government side of things and are reporting only that the white supremacists killed a marshal and are refusing negotiations. Angry white-winged protesters gathered near Ruby Ridge. Skinheads came from as far away as Las Vegas and Portland. Richard Butler used this as propaganda opportunity. Repeated attempts to negotiate with Weaver via a bullhorn failed. There was no response from the cabin. Some of the negotiation efforts, inspired by the belief that Vicky was still alive and was the key to a peaceful resolution of the standoff, backfired miserably. Notably, for example, one of the negotiators from the bullhorn would yell, Good morning, Mrs. Weaver. We had pancakes this morning, and what did you have for breakfast? Why don't you send the children out for some pancakes, Mrs. Weaver? The Weavers interpreted the pancakes idea as just a cruel joke. Vicky's dead body was in the kitchen. Randy and Vicky's families both came. They denied the narrative that Randy and Vicky were racist. They told the press about the religious fanaticism that had overtaken them and led them to the mountains. As agents are in the process of destroying outbuildings around the Weaver's cabin, they discover Sammy Weaver's body. So the narrative was starting to shift. Since the bullhorn wasn't working and they knew the family had a radio, they commissioned radio host Paul Harvey to communicate with the family. He told the family that they would be unharmed, that there was a lawyer ready to represent them in the killing of the U.S. Marshal. They did not trust anything they were told. Day 4, Monday, August 24th. FBI Deputy Assistant Director Danny Coulson, who seems to have some common sense and who did not know that Vicki Weaver had been killed, wrote a memo with the following content. Something to consider. 1. Charge against Weaver is bullshit. 2. No one saw Weaver do any shooting. 3. Vicky has no charges against her. 4. Weaver's defense. 
He ran down the hill to see what the dog was barking at. Some guys in camis shot his dog, started shooting at him, killed his son. Harris did the shooting. He is in a pretty strong legal position. And still. And still it continues. And I didn't put this in, but during the documentary, when the daughter Sarah is talking about what happened to her mother and how she was standing right in front of her mom when her mom was shot and that her mom fell and her mom had been holding the baby. It's just, it was so sad. It was, do I agree with any of this family's ideology? Absolutely not. But is it, it's never okay. Like it just, for children to see that is, I mean, that baby could have been killed. Right. And it comes out later that the sniper wasn't even shooting at Vicky. He was just shooting at the open door. He didn't even know she was standing there. So he, I mean, he could have very easily shot the infant very easily. And that gun was powerful enough to go through Vicky's head and then into Kevin's stomach where it caused like serious damage. Right. And Sarah was saying too in the documentary that when she heard this huge explosion, which was the gunshot that hit her mother and she felt all of the, this stuff hit her. And, yeah. you know, then she looks around and see that it's her mother that's been shot. And the things that had hit her were parts of her mom's body. Yeah. Like how yeah. traumatizing, how traumatizing. I, I, I know. I, it's I can't un- even wrap my brain around Unimaginable. It. All right, guys, we're halfway through the siege. <laughs> Heavy stuff, guys. All right. Day five. Tuesday, August 25th. In the cabin, Kevin is in terrible shape. He's in so much pain from the gunshot wound and ensuing infection that he is begging Randy to kill him. Vicky's body is still in the kitchen. The crowd at the base of the mountain is furious. And this is when the skinheads um, attempt to smuggle guns up the mountain. They are thankfully caught. This had become a worldwide story and the narrative and the sympathy for the FBI and federal marshals had started to wane since the body of a 13-year-old child was found in the shed. And clearly the weavers didn't kill their kid. Day six, Wednesday, August 26th, the rules of engagement that had been in effect since the arrival of the SWAT teams were revoked. Per Glenn's direction, the FBI's standard deadly force policy replaced the amended one to guide law enforcement personnel that were to be deployed to the cabin perimeter. Not real fucking helpful now, guys. Day seven, Thursday, August 27th, the FBI is failing. If you watch this documentary or really watch any of the news coverage on this, the head of the FBI who's in charge of this mission, he is flailing. He can't answer questions. He has no idea what to say. He's surrounded by, at this point, hundreds of angry protesters. It's it's literally like watching a grown man drown. <laughs> Just 
It's so <laughs> terrible. And it's like he doesn't want to be the fall guy, I'm sure. Right. Because everything is going so terribly at this point. Yes. That yes. he doesn't want to be the fall guy. Fall guy. So anything that's coming out of his mouth it sounds so political. Like he's Yes. Well, you said it earlier. He's like he sounds like a robot. Yeah. There is no emotion coming from him. I think he's it's like a man just trying to get through it. Right. Under mounting pressure, they agree that they need a third party negotiator, somebody that Randy knows and trusts and will let approach the cabin because they know it's not going to be any of them. The hostage negotiator is getting nowhere. Randy won't even, they left an old school sat phone on the front of the cabin. He wouldn't open the door to get it. They have to try something new. Day eight. This is, this guy's a real character. This one coming in. (laughs) Go Bo. So day eight, Friday, August 28th, a man named James Bo Gritz, who is a former Green Beret and was at that time running for president on the third party ticket, the populist party ticket. And Gritz and Randy knew each other. So Gritz agrees to approach the cabin. And you can tell in his news interviews, he loves it. He loves all of it. He loves the attention. He loves the the subject matter. He loves all of it. So he approaches the cabin and he yells out, Randy, it's Bo. Let me in. And immediately, uh, Randy opens the door and yells, they've killed my wife. He then lets Grits into the cabin where he sees Vicky's body that has been laying there for a week. On the cabin floor, Kevin is dying. Girls are a mess. Randy's a mess. So he goes back down the mountain and in front of all of the news cameras, announces that Vicky had been shot a week before and was in the cabin and that another one was injured. He's talking about Kevin. Then he gets a body bag and he goes back up the mountain and he goes into the cabin where he helps Randy put Vicky in a body bag. And then Randy allows Bo to pick her up and carry her down the mountain. Day nine, Saturday, August 29th, Gritz continues to visit the cabin. Uh, he's talking to the feds. He's talking to the press. He actually is really complimentary of the government in all of these interviews that the government is really trying to be helpful and really doing everything in their power. It's clear that he is in his element. I'll just say that you should watch the documentary. Things sort of seem to be moving in the right direction. Randy is at least speaking to somebody. Day 10, Sunday, August 30th, Bo goes back to the cabin with two other friends. And between the three of them, they succeed in convincing Kevin Harris, who is very close to dying, to surrender and receive medical treatment. So they carry him down the mountain and he is life flighted to Washington. Day 11, Monday, August 31st, Bo goes back up the mountain where he sees Randy and the girls. Randy tells him that they had prayed about it all night and that they had decided they were not going to surrender. That he and his three daughters, one of whom was a baby, decided that they were just going to wait to be killed. They weren't going to surrender. Bo, at this time, says, don't tell me you're going to quit trying now. You're not going to quit now. And after a few moments, Randy said, girls, get your things together. We are going to follow Colonel Bo down the mountain. And you can see pictures of this. It's 
It's heartbreaking. They're holding hands as they walk down the mountain. And once they get down the mountain, the girls are put into cars. And Randy, who had been shot in the arm a week before, um, is ushered into a medical tent because they've essentially set up a massive tented city in the meadow where Sammy had died. So there's a video of Randy getting attention from the EMTs, and you can hear him tell them how pretty his wife was. And if he had known that this was how things would turn out, he would never have cut in on his friend dancing with Vicky. Bogritz, meanwhile, had a new campaign issue. He told supporters and the press at Ruby Ridge, quote, there's a bureaucrat up here that's guilty. Somebody is going to be brought to justice. I believe we're going to find some fat bureaucrat who authorized this to go down. The FBI's top agent at Ruby Ridge, the one who was robotic, <sighs> his name was Gene Glenn. And he said of the events on the mountain, we are very sorry. There are no winners in a situation with all this sadness. It is the understatement of the century. Yeah. And the thing is, to me, I think about, you know, uh, Sarah and Randy and this baby and all of the sadness and all of the terrible things that happened. But there were men on that mountain, FBI marshals state police officers, you know, FBI, who obviously thought this was the wrong way to handle things. And can you imagine being a part of that team and knowing that it was wrong and knowing that a child and a dog and a mother had been killed and having to live with that for the rest of your life? No. You know, while I think that uh, Mr. Glenn mm -hmm. was trying to save his own ass, he was right. There just were no winners. Didn't matter who was right or wrong. Nobody has won here. And, you know, I think it would be easy to be like, well, Randy was clearly a white supremacist. He was clearly breaking the law. It would be a very e easy argument for us to fall back on, like whatever he got, he deserved. But at the end of the day, none of this was handled right. It's like they all got lost in this big government machine. And nobody could stop the fucking train. Which is really relative to what's happening right now. Yes. Yeah. And it is crazy yeah. to me. And I don't remember if this gets brought up later in the story or not. But when Sarah is talking about it in this documentary, mm -hmm. she's not only talking about her family. She's talking. She talks about the government and the police and how, you know, when you're led by fear and misinformation, terrible, terrible yes. things happen. And yes. she was relaying that also to the government, which was so spoke to me so much to see that yes. she could have so much hate in her heart for all government, all police, you know, all of these things. And she, I think she was able to have some compassion for, yeah. for them as well, which was yeah. amazing to me. Well, I mean, I think it just shows if you go into a situation with your mind already made up about what the situation is, you know, if you are told one thing and you don't use any kind of critical thinking skills that you have in your head, 
it's always going to turn out wrong. It's, it just is, it's uh, such a fucking mess. I, ugh. Yeah, it's terrible. It's just, I, gives me chills when we're telling this, talking about it. Yeah. Anyway, so we are at trial now. April 14th, 1993, the murder trial of Randy Weaver and Kevin Harris opens in the federal courthouse in Boise before Judge Edward Lodge. Randy was charged with murder, conspiracy, and assault. Kevin is charged with first-degree murder for the death of Deegan. The famed defense attorney, Jerry Spence, was representing them. Do you remember Jerry Spence? I don't. I'm going to Google really quick, but I'm pretty sure he was, he's like a white haired cowboy. Um, he wrote, he did really famous cases. Oh, I saw it. I saw it in the, uh, article that I was reading. I saw it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's, he does look like this old timey cowboy. Yes. And he wore like leather fringed mm-hmm. blazers and yes. he, ne- he's never lost a case. And he did, I'm trying to remember what other cases he did, um, but he had some, oh, he, he represented Imelda Marcos. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt, but yes, he, um, I'll put a picture of him too, but I very distinctly remember him from the news back in the day because he is so larger than life and so... He looked like he had been cast in the role. Yes, you're right. It's like cowboy lawyer with the fringe and the long white hair. And- with the boats and the fur. <laughs> <laughs> Lighten it up there for a second, guys. <laughs> All right. Sorry, sorry for my interruption. Go on. <laughs> Cut it out. All right. So the prosecution brought a cart loaded with 14 guns, including two loaded with armor-piercing bullets and 4,500 rounds of ammunition to be shown to the jury. Prosecutors also played surveillance videotapes showing gun-carrying kids roaming around the Rocky Knob that was the Weaver's property. Arthur Roderick, responding to questions about the tapes, observed that 13-year-old Sammy was shown to carry a gun 84% of the time. Perhaps the most anticipated prosecution witness was Lon Horichi, the young FBI sniper who shot Randy Weaver and Kevin Harris and who killed Vicki Weaver. Ten armed federal agents were in the courtroom for the testimony. Neo-Nazi groups had plastered wanted dead or alive posters featuring a picture of Horichi. The witness testified he fired his first shots in the belief that Kevin Harris was positioning himself to shoot an approaching government helicopter. When he fired the bullet that killed Vicki, Harichi said he had no idea that she was standing behind the curtain to the door that Randy and Kevin were rushing to enter. No, sir, Harichi replied when asked whether he ever intended to kill Vicky. On cross, Spence asked the sniper if he knew there was a possibility of someone being behind the door. Harichi admitted that he understood the possibility. Spence saw an opportunity to use Harichi to bring jurors to terms with the horror caused by his shot. He asked about the screaming that was heard following his fatal bullet. That screaming went on for 30 seconds, Spence asked. About 30 seconds, yes, sir. Spence seized the moment. 
I want us to take 30 seconds. Now pretend in our mind's eye that we can hear the screaming. Spence said nothing, and all eyes in the courtroom turned to the wall where the second hand on a clock traced half of a circle. Said he's a showman. Yeah, but that does the trick. You know, 30 seconds, when you say 30 seconds, like, that's so fast. When you're 30 seconds sitting there picturing somebody screaming in a courtroom. Uh-huh. Oh, no, I think it's very effective. Yeah. yeah super yeah. effective. A series of ballistic and forensic witnesses brought to an end the government's case. The ballistics report showed that 19 rounds were fired during the fight. Roderick fired one shot from an M16A1, which killed Stryker the dog. Then Sammy fired three from a 223 Ruger Mini-14. That was at Roderick. Deegan fired seven from an M16 at Harris and Weaver while moving at least 21 feet. And Cooper fired six from a 9mm Colt submachine gun at Harris and Weaver. Harrison fired two guns from a .30-06 M1-1917 Enfield rifle, striking and killing Deegan. After the federal agents began firing, Sammy was killed by a shot to the back while retreating. Harris fired one unnamed shot and killed Deputy U.S. Marshal Deegan. The jury had listened to 54 prosecution witnesses over 36 days. You know... These ballistics, like the way that they do these sort of, do you know what I'm talking about? Like in the documentary, it showed them kind of how they reenacted with string where all of the bullets landed. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. It's amazing. You have to have a very specific kind of personality to be able to do it because you have to be so precise and patient. But I can't, I mean, how they got to the end of that and had all of that information put together. I, I think that's like fascinating stuff. According to that famous trial website, Jerry Spence began his summation by shaking Randy Weaver's hand. He told the jurors, you may be the most important jury that's come along in a decade. This was a case, he said, that kids in law school were going to read about. At one point, Spence knelt before Randy Weaver, looked him in the eyes, and said, Randy, I'll tell you what you're guilty of. You're guilty of being one stubborn mother. You are guilty of being afraid. Turning to the jury, Spence continued, Aren't we all guilty of being afraid? I have to tell you, if I was in the jury and I watched him get down on his knees and say that to anyone, I would get the ick so bad that I would not be able to look again. I would have to put my face down and like close my eyes. I would be so embarrassed. You would have secondhand embarrassment. (laughs) Secondhand embarrassment. It's the worst. And talk about a showman. Holy moly. I just, I, I, or I would start laughing. Like I just, it's. You would do uh, both. Come on. I can see. I, I can see you right now. I would. And you would be so laugh. appropriate. Yeah. Then you'd yeah. look at me because no, I'd be there with you. Obviously, we'd get on the jury together. Yeah. All right. So for the next two and a half hours, Jerry Spence railed against what he called a government cover-up of its own ineptitude, which I think is a perfect summation of this entire debacle. 
a government cover-up of its own ineptitude. He angrily shouted, Marshals aren't supposed to shoot little boys in the back. Agreed, Jerry. Spence told jurors that this was indeed a murder case, but the people who committed the murder have not been charged. He suggested Randy Weaver, who had lost his wife, had been punished enough. The horror needs to come to an end. Then he told jurors they had the power to do just that. The jury deliberations lasted longer than any other in Idaho history. The jury's task was complicated by eight separate charges, ranging from failure to appear in court to first-degree murder. And it got a little contentious in the jury room at times, and little factions of jury um, developed. But finally, on July 8th, they completed their work. They voted to acquit Kevin Harris on all charges and Randy Weaver on all major charges. Weaver was convicted of failing to appear in court. That was it. On October 18th, Judge Lodge sentenced Weaver to 18 months in jail, but he had already served 14 months. And with good behavior, that sentence meant he could be out by Christmas. All of this for the failure to appear charge. Yeah, it's just really disgusting. Okay, so after the trial in Washington, investigation into what happened in August 1992 continued on several fronts. An FBI investigation of the incident led to minor punishment for 14 agency employees. The Department of Justice prepared a 542-page report on the case, concluding that the shot that killed Vicki Weaver violated the department's deadly force policy and contravened the Constitution. A subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee held hearings on Ruby Ridge in the fall of 1995. Weaver told senators that if he had to do it over again, I would come down the mountain for the court appearance. In 1995, a civil suit brought by the Weaver family against the United States was settled, with the government agreeing to pay $3.1 million in compensation for the deaths of Vicki and Sammy Weaver. Five years later, Kevin Harris accepted a $380,000 settlement. Back in Boundary County in 1997, there were further developments. County Prosecutor Denise Woodbury filed involuntary manslaughter charges against FBI agent Lon Huichi and murder charges that were later dropped against Kevin Harris. The Horici case moved to federal court where Judge Lodge dismissed the charge on federal preemption grounds. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, voting 6-5, overturned Judge Lodge's decision and reinstated the charge in 2001. Two weeks later, the new Boundary County prosecutor dropped charges against the former sniper. According to his friends, Harichi continues to be haunted by what happened at Ruby Ridge. I bet everybody is haunted by what happened at Ruby Ridge. Everybody that was involved in it. Just. Yeah, I'm sure. Just have to be. totally mortified at the whole thing. Ugh. Randy Weaver, around the time that charges were dropped against Harichi, lived on a quiet street in Jefferson, Iowa. He appeared at gun shows, signed copies of his 1998 book about the siege. He usually inscribed, keep your powder dry. And he 
continued to harbor his racial separatism and anti-government beliefs. His views on religion had changed, though. Religion's all a bunch of crap, he told one reporter at a Nebraska gun show. The Weaver family, including Randy, later moved to Kalispell, Montana. Sarah and the other two Weaver daughters are employed there. Sarah became a born-again Christian and said in 2012 that she had forgiven the federal agents who killed her mother and brother. Randy Weaver died on May 11, 2022, at the age of 74. Asked in 2001 what he remembered about Ruby Ridge, Weaver said. There was no wind. The snowflakes were so big you could hear them when they hit the ground. The kids had three or four campgrounds around the land. They'd go out and build fires at night, and Vicky canned. She and the kids would pick huckleberries. She got top dollar because she picked clean. Or she'd trade a gallon of huckleberries for four quarts of peaches. We sold firewood. Me, Vic, and the kids. So sad. It's devastating, actually. Yep. And how much effect it can have on you so far afterward. People like you and I who weren't even involved. It's like so chilling to me. Well, I think it's like you said. I, I really, I think we all feel right now. We all feel this sort of impending sense of doom. I mean, I have for like the last... I don't know, seven years, <laughs> but I think we all feel that, I mean, everything has become so extreme. And when you live in a place like Idaho, that is predominantly very conservative and maybe you aren't and you see things going further and further away from the norm you kind of live in the suspended state of angst. And this feels like it could very easily happen tomorrow and it would be the same fuck up again. I mean, it feels like right. this This is very familiar. This feels like something that could easily happen in any place in Idaho, except for maybe Boise. Really, it feels like any other place in Idaho it could happen and it could happen anywhere and it it wouldn't even be surprising no and i think you know it's another example of they had too many people who were quote unquote in charge like yeah there was so much confusion because of it like with the yes. the deadly you know the deadly policy that they had and that they changed yeah they don't yeah. tell everybody that some people didn't you know, grasp of so much misinformation. Well, I mean, it's like they, they said they gathered all of these people into the tent. They explained the new policy and all of the snipers walked out and they all had heard different things. I mean, none of them were on the same page about what they had just been told. And that is like an, such a good example of what this entire case is, is just People hear what they want to hear. They believe what they want to believe. And then you just shoot and pray. Right. And I have a different perspective, I think, on the law enforcement side of it, having worked with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And the 
men and women that I worked with, you know, they're all such great officers, such good people. And you see the different sides of different situations like this. And it's really hard to, for me to watch people judge the law enforcement side of it as being bad, wrong, bad, wrong, because they're the ones who are running into these situations. Everyone else is running away, you know, and it's so easy to judge something sitting here behind my computer. Were they wrong? Yes, absolutely. There was so much wrong. But what is so sad to me is that I know that a lot of those men were good men and yeah. and how this will haunt them forever. It's just terrible. It is terrible. It is absolutely terrible. And what sucks about this is it's sort of like military, you know, like these people are sent in and they are given instructions on what to do. And then they have to carry out these orders that they are given, even if it feels wrong, even if. Right. And they have to live with it because I feel like the ones, uh, you know, the uppers giving that demand. Okay. Yeah. They're the ones who said, you know, gave the order to do it, but they aren't the one pulling the trigger, executing whatever it may be. And to live with that in such different ways. Yeah. For the rest of your life. I mean, it's, it just, the entire thing is, is such a lesson and it. Hopefully not only our attorneys (laughs) reading about this case file centuries later, but hopefully they're using it to train FBI, U.S. Marshals, state police, city police, county sheriff's offices, you know. Well, they do, they do use this case as um, an example of what not to do uh, at the FBI headquarters. Perfect. Because it, I mean, nothing good came out of it, but if something, if there can be some silver lining that hopefully something like this wouldn't happen again. Well, get on to our O Idaho. But this is really an O bureaucracy. The Senate Judiciary Committee report said that the profile of Randy Weaver that was given to agents in charge before the siege began included, quote, a brief psychological profile completed by a person who had conducted no firsthand interviews and was so unfamiliar with the case that he referred to Weaver as Mr. Randall throughout. Yep. Yeah. And this is what was distributed to oh. the people on the ground. His name wasn't even correct in this quote profile that they had a quote professional put together. Oh, I know. Oh, bureaucracy. (laughs) (laughs) So that was so heavy. It was heavy for us, too. Yeah. Where we've been so lighthearted and we like to laugh and we do when we get together. But. Yeah, we appreciate you guys sticking with us. This is I think this is such an important story to tell. And I know it's heavy. But it's also so interesting and it shows so many facets of what happens in our state. And I think it's important to remember these things. And, you know, my son had no idea. He's, you know, in the eighth grade, he, they're not taught about this stuff in school. And he's, he's the age now that we were when we, when it happened. When this happened. Right. It's interesting to me how history 
what is taught changes. Yeah. As time goes on. Mm-hmm. What becomes the important things to teach in history and and what they leave out? Because there's so much. You can't do everything. But it's really interesting to me. Yeah. Agreed. Anywho, well, that's the story of Ruby Ridge, guys. We hope you enjoyed hanging out with us. And if you did, please, pretty please, like and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We are everywhere these days. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Ghosts and Garnets Podcast, on Twitter at Ghosts Garnets, and our Facebook page is Ghosts and Garnets Murder in Idaho. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you, guys.